Hey everybody, this is Derek. This is Mark. Nick, 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 Nickelodeon. <laughs> yeah, whatever you do, don't say I don't know. <laughs> that's right? what that's from, right? Because then you get slimed, you can't do that in television. I, I mm-hmm. mean, I think that's just the general, like, uh, whatever jingle from Nick and Nickelode- the Nickelodeon in the 80s, but I just remember it in the context of you can't do that on television, where if you said, I don't know, mm-hmm. you got slime, dude. Um, actually, I think that was the early and mid-90s. Um, I think there is a uh, Mandela effect where we attribute those things to the <laughs> 80s. Uh, no way, that was the 80s. Or no, that was I, the 90s, excuse me. Yeah, you can't do that on television. Has got Well, let's oh, hold on, let's see here. The other thing Maybe about that... Maybe it went into the 90s, but... Yeah. Okay, yeah, okay, you can't do that on television was like the really old school like Canadian show with Alanis Morissette on it, which, yeah, Alanis Morissette was on that. It started in... It seemed British. I remember the animation in the beginning seemed very British. Yes, it's Monty Python-ish. Totally. You're totally right. And actually, okay, it started airing locally in Canada in 1979, so like before our time. It came to the U.S. in 81, but we were definitely watching it on Nickelodeon, like at the turn of the decade, like in the early 90s, for sure. And then I'm also getting that mixed up with a very similar show, which came later, which is What Would You Do, hosted by Mark Summers, which like also included slime. It's kind of like a derivative of You Can't Do That on Television. Didn't he host another slime show? Um, yeah, he also hosted uh, Double Dare. Oh, yeah, Double Dare. Thank yeah. you. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Mark Summers was really cool. And then he went on to host Unwrapped on the Food Network. Uh, and I saw an interview with him recently, and uh, he was very cool. He was on Tim Heidecker's uh, weekly like talk show, and he was a really cool dude. Yeah, Mark Summers seems very legit. Uh, no, dude, he's lame. Don't you remember that one time he had a, a feud with... Uh Burt Reynolds. Burt Reynolds. Yeah, he did and get into like exactly a fight. I don't know exactly what happened, but I'm just going to take Burt Reynolds' side. I'm sure <laughs> he, he did was get. Right. Yeah, he did get into sort of like a fight with Burt Reynolds on Johnny Carson once, which is an interesting story. He yeah. talked about it on Heidecker's show, um, but no, he he seems like a cool guy. So what did he say? I was 100% wrong. Burt Reynolds, 100% right, because that's the only thing that would save him in my. No, head. he kind of said that you know in real life, Burt Reynolds is sort of an a hole who's full of himself. Which what do you expect? But I think the whole thing with Mark Summers is just that. Uh, he comes from like a magician, like comedy, like stage performing sort of background. So he was like willing to sort of like riff and kind of like bark back at Burt Reynolds in a way that like should have been like jovial and cool. Uh, but Burt Reynolds, because he was like a big famous movie star at the time, was being kind of like egotistical about it. I think it's like whatever. It was it, it's 50-50. It's fine. I, it didn't make me hate Burt Reynolds, but it didn't make me think that Mark Summers was lame either. I think the story was very equitable. Okay, Burt Reynolds before Mark Summers. That's my bros before hose and Burt Reynolds before Mark <laughs> Summers. Those are my two guiding lights in my life. Well, you know, Burt Reynolds also like fought with PTA on the set of Boogie Nights and did not think that Boogie Nights wound up being a great movie. So he's he definitely is not batting one thousand. Well, we can at least say that. <laughs> yeah, nobody's perfect. Yeah, yeah he's using grumpy old man phase at that point. He's perfect in his imperfection. Yeah, you could say. Yeah. Um, well, that's a good segue right there. Perfect in his imperfection <laughs> to talk about Sam Harris's new podcast. Yep, Sam Harris, uh, squaring up, you know, clearing up all the all his points about COVID, and just ends up making it worse. First Sam of Harris all, did I mean, a the podcast. one thing that stands out about this, yeah, 
Yeah, well, just to intro it for people who who might you know not be following too closely, Sam Harris did a podcast. I think it's episode number three thirty six. If people want to go find it, where he basically is, uh, yeah, doing doing a long form explanation of his viewpoints about COVID and responding to some of the criticism that's out there. Now, to be honest, I wasn't familiar with any of the criticism in the first place. I'm not seeing. Uh, these clips that he was so upset about, but you uh, have this on your radar and you took notes. So maybe you can walk us through us a little, uh, a little bit more. Right. So I think the big thing that Sam Harris said, and this is maybe a month or two ago, I don't know when this <clears throat> podcast came out, but he said something to the effect of, I would have been right about COVID. You know, my stance would have been right or my trepidation about, you know, opening up and, you know, not having lockdowns. It would have been right if COVID did affect children negatively. Which sounds bad. What it, you know, what it sounds like, you know, if you put on your Twitter brain, put in your Twitter brain, put on your Twitter hat, internet brain, it sounds like what he's saying is, yeah, I would have been right if more children would have died. And you can kind of make the implication from there. I mean, I never did. When I saw this clip on Twitter, I never made the implication that he, th- he thought, oh, it would have been good if more children would have died. Then I would have been right. And I think the tweets that he responding to implied that. But that was never my takeaway from it. I never thought that he would want children to die just so he would be right. That's ridiculous. I just think it indicates how bad his position has gotten. I think because he's pulling out the, if more children would have died, then I would have been right. I mean, that just seems like a, a really bad argument at that point. Mm-hmm. Here's what's going on is per- Sam Harris, who, you know, I rag on him. We bring him up on this show. And I think when we talk about it on the show, I mostly rag on him. I like him. Mm-hmm. I like Sam Harris. I don't, obviously, I don't agree with everything he says. And some things he says in this podcast that have nothing to do with COVID are ridiculous. Like, um, dude, a- Alex Jones belongs in jail because of what he said about Sandy Hook. Right. And then later on, he says Alex Jones should be able to start his own social network. So it's like, which one is it? Well, you know, I don't think he says, I don't think he would really, gun to head, he would not want to put Alex Jones in jail for saying something wrong about Sandy Hook and re-traumatizing the parents. Like, that's some kind of jail jailable offense. But he did kind of think like, yeah, you know, okay, I wouldn't really want it, but it would be cool, right? It would be cool if Alex Jones, it would kind of be cool if we, like, lived in a society. You know, it's kind of like my thing on dogs. Like, I don't think, you know, you should go to jail for uh, hurting dogs or killing dogs, you know. But I think it's, I want to live in a society where we just socially ostracize people who do, who do stuff like that. Right. And I think that's what he was saying about Alex Jones, which is an absolutely ridiculous. Okay, but that's beside the point. Um, so I, I think that's what Sam Harris. Yeah. So what Sam Harris represents is like the the liberal intellectual, what West Wing liberal. Let's just get the right people in charge. You know, if if we just formulate the right bill, Derek, and pass it through Congress, it can get a lot of work done. If the bill's formulated by like you know these smart guys who go to Yale, mm-hmm. and. Uh, this guy with this kind of um, with, with this approach to COVID, he uh, 
he got it wrong. And he and that's what people are upset about. Not that he's saying, oh, if more children would have died, then I would have been right about COVID. I don't really think that people are upset about that. Maybe, I mean, I don't know, maybe there's a lot of projection for me going on. But I think they ju- people just want him to say, oh, yeah, I got that wrong. And he never says that. What he says is, given the information at the time, I had the exact right position, and anybody who was right in hindsight was only right by accident. Mm-hmm. And he can't see it any other way. Yeah, he does basically say that. I agree. And then he also says that social media is the downfall of civilization. So a lot of good points, a lot of good, totally non-boomer points that he makes. Right. In this uh podcast. Yeah, I took I took notes on this episode in chronological order where I just I wrote down the things that I think were highlights to touch on. And so I think if we were to go through those things in chronological order, we would wind up sort of circling back and revisiting exactly what you're talking about here. Um I, I think what you're saying is sort of like the right summation. You know, the jumping off point for this whole thing is I've been getting these tweets sent to me, even though I'm not on Twitter anymore. And I, Sam Harris, I'm very proud about that and, and never miss an opportunity to, to gloat about how I really manned up and got off of Twitter and it, it made me so much happier, even yeah, though I'm still... he really doesn't like Elon. Yeah, even though he I'm still talking like, about you Twitter know what, You know what it is? He doesn't have Trump derangement syndrome. He just has guys who are cooler than I am syndrome. Yeah. And who probably have like some uh, dexterity with locker room talk. And I never fit in there. That's, that's what he doesn't like. That's what this is. Anyway, but that's, a, that's, a, that's me psych, psychoanalyzing him. Yeah, I mean, the but, first uh, thing. Yeah, it, I mean, it's a strange point. I mean, it'd be like if the vaccines did end up working like the way people said that they were going to work from the beginning in April 2021. It's like me saying, well, you know, Derek, or you know, Sam Harris, if vaccines were deadlier, my vaccine hesitancy would have been right. Right. By that same argument, you could say that, right? It I cuts see what both you mean. ways. Yeah. It's just such a terrible argumentation. And the way he comes on and, you know, I get it because I'm this way too. I like Sam Harris. I, I like him. So when he does stuff like this, I get it because it's what I do too. He comes on and he says definitively this argument that he doesn't realize could cut both ways. And he's talking about how he's like calling all his smart friends at Yale and Johns Hopkins, yet he can't see how this one argument cuts both ways and he doesn't understand how that could possibly be upsetting to people or just really annoying to people that he can't just... right. Okay, so my point is something like Joe Rogan or Jimmy Dore would say, see, Sam Harris is so caught up in the narrative that this is an obvious argument that cuts both ways but he can't see that and on top of it when he says the argument he says it like he's the smartest guy in the world Mm -hmm. and so just the whole sam harris thing is 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 frustrating it's just it's just kind of frustrating and you know whatever I, i i still like him i'm gonna say that five ten more times as we're talking about him here i still like him um he reminded me of the things that he got right recently, like the uh, like the media's exaggeration of you know police on black brutality, black people brutality. And, you know, he really came out and, and he put his neck on the line and he said that that was a myth. And you know, he he still says good things like that, but um, I don't know. He also wants Sam Harris in jail, so who knows? Alex Jones in jail, yeah. Uh, yeah, Alex Jones. Did I just say Sam Harris in jail? Yeah. Well, that was my slip there. That's your. That's what you're thinking. 
you know, I don't really want Sam Harris in jail, but if we just got together collectively and burned him at the stake, okay, that would be fine. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the thing that's going on here, which me and you have talked about offline, is that, you know, Sam Harris has this problem, which I have definitely fallen prey to. And I completely understand how a person who cares a lot about their uh, intellectual persona or how they are perceived uh, would fall into. Uh, he's falling into this trap of like he just needs to have the last word. He cannot he he literally cannot sit there peacefully in his uber successful life of comfort uh, and ease if he knows that there's somebody out there who thinks that he said something that he didn't actually say or like who misinterpreted something that he said. He's such uh, a stickler about that stuff. And I get it. I'm teasing him about that, but I also get it. I've been that way. I've fallen into that trap. And that's really the jumping off point for this entire podcast is he says that, look, yeah. even though I'm above all of this and I don't need Twitter anymore and I think social media is destroying society, still people are sending me clips of me. And when I right. see these clips of me, they make it sound like I'm saying something that I didn't say. And it's not even a straw man. Uh, it's worse than that. It's taking something that uh, is edited in a deceptive way to portray the the actual opposite of what I really believe, and imagine how you would feel if you were me. It wasn't though. Mm-hmm. He's making that up. It wasn't edited in that way. I thought he was going to say the, the true exact opposite of what I thought he said based on that clip. But what he said, he said is exactly what was portrayed in that clip. I was not surprised by that big reveal at all. Mm. I think he's so wedded to this narrative, he can't believe he got it wrong unconsciously and all these rednecks and Diz got it right and he thinks oh that's just lucky Mm -hmm. you clearly didn't look at the statistics like i did no i did but i don't have this you know it's very telling too the way that he talks about people and he seems like very responsible for not what he says but people's reactions and what people do based on what he says right so he didn't want to you know um call any attention to the vaccines not working as well as maybe they initially said that they were going to work. He didn't want to call any attention to that because he still thought it would be a good idea for people in general to get vaccines. So that really tells you a lot. Like, I mean, he really sees himself as this philosopher king and people are stupid. And if they get the truth, if they learn more and more that the vaccines aren't working the way that they were initially promised that they did work, then it would lead to worse public health in in the long run. Yeah, and this is my point about him. You know, when we uh, last we talked about <clears throat> Harris in response to the uh, podcast that he did with Christakis, I'm sure you can run the numbers and say if everybody got the Moderna vaccine in America, there would have been fewer deaths. Yeah, three million, according to him. Yeah. And and even if that's true, I, I would just believe in on the numbers. I have no problem with that. But that doesn't mean that everybody needs to take the vaccine. Mm -hmm. Those are two completely different things. And he doesn't get that. He just sees it as like making this calculation of, yeah, he's just like running the numbers, putting in an algorithm, like putting in his like statistical analysis uh, software and saying, okay, well, this many people need to take this Moderna vaccine and we would have the least amount of deaths possible. Mm Mm-hmm. He would rather say that than tell people everything about the vaccine, everything about the, uh, you know, comorbidities thing, and just letting people decide on their own. 
Well, let's let's talk. Even about though he that. was against the mandates, right? He was against, but mandates. still, he w- he would want people to take them. Yeah, no, you're you're leaning in the direction here that I wanted to talk about. I think you know to put okay. my cards on the table. I think I probably agree with him more than you do, um, but I also think that there is some wishy washiness happening here, and I wanted to try to you know take ten minutes here before we move on to Twin Peaks, which is much more uh, interesting and fruitful um, and relevant and healthy. Yeah, culturally. But I want to try to do the thing of like steel manning and, and trying to like put it in the best light possible just for the sake of doing it so that people who aren't going to take I the time. I thought that's what I was doing. <laughs> well, people who are not going to take the time to listen to the Sam Harris episode, I want them to at least know, to, to, to know at least kind of what's being said here. So he starts off with this thing about like what I said before. He's upset about these clips. There, uh, th- th- There's clips that represent the thing that you're saying about how like it almost sounds like as, as though he's wishing it would have been worse so he could have been more vindicated. Uh, in the way that these clips are edited, et cetera, et cetera. You could really just skip like the first half of this entire podcast because it doesn't matter. He's kind of like clearing the air about all of that stuff. He's talking about Brett Weinstein a lot. Like, who cares? I like, Dude, he no- has a thing for Brett Weinstein. Yeah, like, Dude, why cares. does he edit? Why does he edit the audio? I can tell that he edits it and it sounds even more robotic. Yeah, I don't, it's just the worst idea to edit the audio unless you really know what you're doing. I don't know. It, um, it just there's there's subject subjunctive clauses that just do not have the proper timing or rhythm. Anyway. Yeah. Well, okay. So I'll try to filter through these notes that I took to try to make sure to focus on the things that actually matter because there's a lot of extended like you know drama and airing of laundry and stuff there regarding like yeah Brett Weinstein and Renee Deresta and Elon and I just and Joe Rogan and and who cares? I mean I think it's important. And this is my like leftist brain talking here. I do think it's important to step outside of this and put yourself into the shoes of somebody who does not care about this. They do not run in these circles. They don't live in California. They're not hanging out at conferences uh, and Silicon Valley like VC uh, dinners. Like we don't need to know who the Weinstein's are. Let's just talk about the regular old stuff here. Uh, and yeah, I think okay, that's right. I think that's much more like kind of fruitful. Um, okay, so what does he really say when you get down to the meat and potatoes of it? Basically, what he says is that, first of all, there's this question of bodily autonomy. I think that was one of the points that he talked about that's worth touching on. He was on a podcast with somebody who basically argued that bodily autonomy trumps all, and you just cannot make an ethical argument that will hold water uh, in which there can be such a thing as a vaccine mandate. Sam Harris's response to that is is two twofold. First of all, he was not in favor of vaccine mandates. He he never was. Uh, he claims. I, I'm just saying what he said. I'm, I didn't like go do the research and like cross check that he never actually called for vaccine mandates. In yeah, I was surprised whole. by that, but I just believe him. I mean, yeah, I, I'm just going to take him at his word. Like I said, I'm steel manning it. Okay, so forget about mandates. But he does make this point that I think is interesting from some of the like lifeboat ethics, like philosophy talk perspective where he says like, look, we could always alter the variables here. We could make the virus more and more and more deadly. We could make it preferentially kill children in a hypothetical scenario, something really, really terrible. And we could also hypothetically crank up the dial of the safety of the vaccines, make them more and more ridiculously brainlessly safe. It's a drop of liquid that you swallow. It instantaneously makes you uh, perfectly free. Here's what I don't like about that thought experiment, because how do I know? How do I know it's safe? Because Pfizer says it's safe? Because the CDC says it's safe? Mm-hmm. 
How do I know that? I mean, I, I understand the thought experiment. I understand where he's going, but I think he's missing the variable, one variable that he doesn't get, that there is, in fact, this medical industrial complex that, yeah, I don't think they're out to hurt people, obviously, but they're going to take advantage of some supposed emergency to make a lot of money. Of course they will. Okay, well, I, I have to jump ahead now because you said that, because I think that is a good response. And he does kind of get into that later on. So now I'm skipping ahead. It's not chronological anymore. Near the end of this episode, he brings up the airplane analogy. So I think what he would say to you oh, is... Oh, God, that it's, airplane it's, analogy. Oh, oh, let's talk about that. That's half my notes. Okay, I'm sorry. Continue. Okay, so so to lay that out there, like what he would say back to you is that like, okay, I understand what you're expressing, Diz. You're saying that we should need to have some skepticism about the motivation and the impetus of the institution that would claim that this vaccine is so exceedingly safe and effective. Um, and what he says to that is like, look, think about what it takes in order for you to fly on an airplane. Uh, think about all the different things that could go wrong, the things that you have to trust uh, in order for it to make any rational sense for you to take the kind of risk of doing something I, like flying Derek, on an airplane. Derek, I, I know you're doing a great job podcasting here, you know, <laughs> restating the analogy, but it, I'm getting cancer. It's so bad. <laughs> Okay, this is such a bad analogy. I know it's not your analogy. I just it's it's painful. <laughs> okay, so, oh, so okay. go ahead. Go Continue. ahead. Green light. Green. You go for it. I think we got it. Okay, here's why that analogy is ridiculous. Pilots are not the same as experts. They're not the same as CDC experts. First of all, the feedback on a play is immediate versus delayed. There is a regimented way to train people in certain, certain, in certain very specific instances on a plane. It is not that way when you're talking about people who go from CDC to Pfizer back to CDC. That's obviously not like some meritocracy, clearly. If, if that's what's going on, these, the incentives of the, of the two systems are completely different. The it's a it's a medical industrial complex. It's a complex precisely because it's a bureaucracy that serves the ends of the bureaucracy as opposed to a service built on a private company. I mean, obviously, there's a lot of regulations there and whatever, but a service that has a definite end in mind. There are two completely different systems. And Sam Harris doesn't see it that way. And, and as far as I'm concerned, we're never on the same, uh, we're never on equal footing in this, in this argument, you know, that I'm having in my head with Sam Harris because he wants to, okay, well, maybe this isn't against Sam Harris, but, but people who wanted vaccine mandates is you want to control me and I don't want to control you. So we're, we're not having an argument anymore, right? We're not on equal footing. And I think he kind of falls into this like, hey, look, whether it's a private company who makes money getting you across the country or a bureaucracy that, that serves its own ends. I mean, that's, that's a complex. That's a psychological complex. Now you're not working for your professed goals. You're working for some unconscious weird goal, like to get more people jobs, to uh, get Pfizer, to uh, make a lot of vaccines, you know, take government money, pay Pfizer so they can make all these vaccines. So yeah, the, really the goal there is to uh, have Pfizer make a lot of money. These are two completely um, goals. We're not all on the same plane together. 
We are not on the same plane together. This is not a lifeboat scenario. There's a big society with a lot of places you can go that's not even close to, to the right scenario. And um, here's a better analogy. The pilots of your airplane are the president of, yeah, the one pilot of your plane, I guess, there wouldn't be two presidents, is the president of Bermuda. And they were just appointed to fly the plane, even though they don't have much experience. Uh, and they assure that the plane is safe to fly to Bermuda because, you know, obviously, um, because obviously they want to take the passengers to Bermuda because they're going to get kickbacks because they were just the president of Bermuda, right? The the airline and the president of Bermuda are working uh, in uh, are working together. This is the so called conspiracy. It's not behind closed doors. It's right out in the open. And they and they took like three test flights to Bermuda, but then they took a fourth one and the fifth one, and those didn't go as well. But they were saying, "Oh no, it's fine." I I know the the evidence this month is a little bit different than last month on these test flights to Bermuda, but it's okay. Let's just go there. That's the right analogy, and I don't think I I don't think Sam Harris will ever be able to get that because of because he sees himself as a philosopher king. And that's, sorry, that's my rant about his air, commercial airplane now. I mean, it's not even close to relevant, not even close to relevant. And it really shows the air in his thinking. I know he doesn't want children to be killed so he can be proven right, obviously. I don't think anybody really think that unless you're like the most Twitter-brained and on, a, and on account on there. But that really shows a huge error in his epistemology, and he, uh, he'll he never be able to see it. You know, I, I think he's this is just how he's been thinking. Look, when you go to elite uh, universities, this is what they tell you. They tell you that you're better than everybody else, and it's your responsibility to, to go out in the world and make America better. Mm-hmm. That that is the undercurrent of these elite universities that that he spent his formative years, and you know part of that is the Marxist-driven. You're smarter. You're going to run society. You're you're going to be part of this administrative state that that runs society, uh, you know, and keeps those those dumb hillbillies from Oklahoma from hurting themselves. Uh, and I think this he, he just can't get out of that. Yeah, I mean, I would describe it as neoliberal instead of Marxist, but that's my bias, and and I see what you mean, though. Regardless, it's this institutional. Well, e- either way, there's yeah. this administrative state that yeah. they want to absolutely yeah, right. impose on you. Now, again, like I said, I want to try to like just for fun in you know ten more minutes here, and then we'll move on to Twin Peaks. I want to engage in sort of the exercise of trying to steel man this. I mean, I think if we treat him in as good a faith as possible, then what we can say about what he's talking about here is. And and I agree with this part here, which is, look, at some point in our near future, we are going to have to deal with another pandemic, and the odds are it's going to be worse than this one. And so I want to, I need to uh, ethically make sure that I'm doing what I can as a public intellectual to try to help ensure that we collectively are equipped to navigate the next uh, pandemic or the next public health emergency in as efficacious a way as possible. And in that interest, yeah. what I'm trying to say here is that we should always try to act on the best evidence that we have available at the time. And so just to flesh this out a little bit as it applies to COVID, he's saying stuff like, look, before we knew anything about this pandemic, it was rational to close schools. 
because, for example, uh, most uh, uh, pandemics, for example, the 1918 flu, uh, preferentially killed the young and the healthy and spread most fervently among the young and the healthy. Now, of course, once we knew better, once the evidence was in, then school closures stopped making sense, no, and see, and we screwed that up the, by keeping them see, closed for too long. See, this is why I need to stay alive as long as possible to let people know what really happened and to really let people know the timeline. Because, yeah, there was a time, I think, in February when we didn't know much about uh, COVID-19, um, it, and it would have been maybe more rational to close schools then, but we didn't close schools in February. When did we start closing schools? I don't think it was until March after we got data on on it and it realized it didn't hurt children at all. There was no evidence that it hurt children. And I mean, even the evidence at the time showed that it clearly hurt the elderly. I mean, later it came out that it hurt people who had, you know, like lung conditions and, and who were overweight. Mm-hmm. No, I think that I, I think that might be him misremembering or something weird going on, but clearly the evidence... Yeah, because he thinks, look, if you were against closing schools in March, then you just weren't, you know, you were just had this knee jerk reaction against whatever a police state, Obama, whatever. Yes. He's and saying that is the people who were against closing schools back then, before the yeah, evidence was sorry. was in, were the type of people who were against everything. And let's dude, not listen dude, to them. In, They're in silly. In February, in February of 2020, I was nervous. I was nervous for this. I didn't know what was going on. I mean, we were getting videos of people in China just dropping over. Okay, that ended up being propaganda. No surprise there, coming from China. But I, I even remember the day I, I looked at the evidence. I think um, it included the evidence from that cruise ship that had a COVID-19 um, infection. That, that was mostly old people. That's why people thought that 2 or 3% of, of America was going to die. Um I looked at the evidence and I just, I remember, like, I just relaxed immediately. And I got on my podcast, Animus Air, that Friday and was like, oh, nothing to worry about here. No, I, that is totally wrong. Look, I'm not some statistics whiz or anything, obviously, but I, you know, I do have a psychology degree. You do have to take statistics classes and, you know, find your, weave your way through a SPSS to, to pass. And so I do know a thing or two about statistics. And I was relieved when I saw those numbers, which ended up being, by the way, I mean, it could have gone either way, but it just, what, so maybe I shouldn't make that point, but those, those early statistics were a good indication of, of what happened overall. Yeah, they, so, they were more severe, you know, they were more severe than what later came, we uh, came to be known to be true. But uh, th- that is a ridiculous statement that, yeah. Yeah, I mean, but... That but, and on top of the... Okay, I'm, I'm sorry, go. No, you, but you get the point, though. He's basically saying, like, look, I want to navigate the next one of these the right way. And the next time this happens, the right thing to do is going to be to be trepidatious, to take all precautions, uh, to even throw... Uh, uh, some of our like cherished notions of uh, autonomy out the window for the sake of the fact that sometimes there are actual pragmatic situations that arise in society, such as a pandemic, uh, like infectious diseases, where there is a sort of collective active a collective action problem, and we need to navigate it the right way because we're not going to get a second chance at it. And that's why he's worried about things like pandemics and uh, nuclear risk. And I agree with him about that. I do agree. I think I think we should hopefully uh, strive towards having a society where we can be as uh, 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 
scrappy and as independent and as self-sufficient uh, as the American dream uh, instills in us, but also understand that we are living in a society and sometimes you might hurt your neighbor by not paying attention to actual scientific yeah. well, reality we're on screwed. the ground. Well, we're screwed because now we know that public intellectuals like Sam Harris don't say what they think. They say what they think other people need to hear from him. Yes. He admits as much here. Yes. And, and also he does say screwed. we were wrong also in doing we're screwed that stuff. Okay. So there's nuclear threat. Who, who do we trust? Who do we trust about there being a nuclear threat? Oh, the same people who tell me that, that Putin's uh, Hitler. Right. Right, I agree. 2.0. I mean, so what's going on? I mean, if you really care about this, attack the deep then, state. Then you yeah. would apologize and say, "I messed up because I'm a pussy, and I have no idea. I, I just have uh, no grammar for locker room talk." So I'm upset at, at Musk for that. Not, not like Musk is some cool guy, but compared to Sam Harris, he's cool. Just say that. Just be honest and say it. That's what we need from our public intellectuals. Not, I, I mean, that's revisionist history if, if he thinks that, oh, in, in March 2020, if you're against school closings. No, in March 2020, we knew. We knew it wasn't a big deal. Now, I don't know if he said March 2020. I mean, I don't know the specific timeline. You're, well, well, you're when, arguing when about, did schools yeah. start to close? I, I don't know. Yeah. It seems like that might be important. Maybe we, we don't have to get into it now. We'll, we'll Maybe we'll just do address it next reason yeah I, I mean i think people got the point it's it's a matter of like when and how you responded to these things as new information came in i mean that's what we're really talking about here um okay we do want to move on from this uh promptly yeah. but i think we do have to talk about like the very last thing that he does in this podcast and it might be the thing that enrages you the most which is he really just goes over the numbers here um according to an unnamed expert uh at johns hopkins uh, and some statistics that are quoted from the CDC. Um, and he basically is throwing these numbers out there to basically just say, like, look, if you disagree with me, I challenge you to answer these questions. What numbers do you have in your head when I pose uh, the, these various different uh, questions about, like, you know, how th things actually stood, what outcomes we wound up with uh, in COVID? And he believes that, you know, stating these numbers and expressing it in this way kind of establishes the point that he's trying to make, which is like, look, we probably should have followed the consensus better than we did because these numbers tell a story about how who who we should have trusted and who who was worth being skeptical about okay so he says uh number of covid deaths in the u.s 1.1 million um and he's he says put whatever error bars you want around these numbers i'm not saying well, that they're perfect well, what percentage i mean i don't care if it was three million what what percentage of those people were going to be dead in six months anyway uh, I don't know. I care whether it was three million or one million, though. That's, well, no, I no, I, I think if, I think if you're going to be dead in six months anyway, I think that definitely matters. I mean, I'm sorry that you died. Well, okay, I guess that leads to the next one, which is that 25 percent of them were under the age of 65, so they were probably not going to be dead in six months. So that's hundreds of thousands of people. I mean, that's why he's bringing this up, right? Is because he wants you to have to sort of sort of confront the magnitude of this thing. Yeah, and, and what percentage of them had comorbidities? Look, I, I mean, he says, and I quote, health isn't a strategy for dealing with a pandemic in general. That's what he says about, oh, you, you can't just, you know, rag on the comorbidities because we can't just tell people to get healthy. I'm like, yeah, that's the effing problem, dude. I don't want a strategy in general. You do. That's the problem, and you don't see that. Now, of course, you can come up with some situation in which millions of kids are going to die and there will be a strategy in general, but this was not even close. 
Not even a little bit close. And he kept repeating throughout the whole thing, you know, this wasn't a normal situation. This wasn't a normal scenario. You know, actually, it kind of was. It was pretty normal. It was a bad flu season, and thankfully, it mostly affected the elderly, not children. It was actually, you know, all things being equal, a pretty average flu season, given that very important factor in this. This was a very normal situation. And he he just needs to keep repeating that it was some tragedy, and, oh, people lost their businesses because of, yeah, obviously because of the shutdown. And he feels sorry for them. No, this was a normal situation that that people, I think, had a hysterical reaction to. And I can empathize. I had that reaction in the beginning. So I get it. But no, I'm sorry. This ended up being a, a pretty normal, uh, a pretty regular thing. All, all things being equal. Now, look, I don't know. Maybe there's going to be some long-term things with, with COVID. Who knows? And, uh, and and your uh, vaccine is going to make your dick three inches longer. I, I don't know, but given given how it is right now, it seemed pretty normal, and it seemed like there was a kernel of panic, and the powers that be. And this is not a conspiracy. This is simply what happens. It's like if there's a snow day. People, if you're normal, you spend time with your family. Maybe you get some extra work done. If you're an alcoholic, you drink a fifth of Jack Daniels. And this is that. This is a snow day for people in power. Power is an addiction, and this was a great excuse for more power. And that's exactly what happened, and, and he doesn't he doesn't see that. He sees it as, as no different than you know a pilot training to get his pilot's license. You know, training to, to fly a four-engine jet. It, you know, it's he's just completely not even not even a little bit relevant to what the situation really was and he just doesn't understand the systems that that led to it google he doesn't says, get it google says that in a bad flu season globally we have around 400,000 deaths that's globally not in the US whereas we had 1.1 million covid deaths in the US but of course that was over multiple years so i, I think it comes out in the wash i mean i can understand the legitimacy of what you're saying just to round out the picture here He's saying that we have models which show that about 3 million lives were saved due to vaccines, that about 300,000 people were killed by vaccine hesitancy. In other, in other words, they wouldn't have died if they would have gotten vaccinated. And whereas on the other side of the ledger, the danger of the vaccines themselves is seeming to come out to be very minimal. They have two known deaths in the U.S. due to vaccines, one of which was Johnson & Johnson, not even mRNA. Um and for people over the age of 65, the percent reduction in hospitalization or death for the vaccinated versus the unvaccinated was something like 20x. So pretty damn effective and and pretty damn safe. Okay. I mean, look, I'm not anti-vax. And that's one thing that he does do in this episode is he conflates people who are wary of some conspiracy mm-hmm. or some you know, understanding of how the medical industrial complex works. He conflates them with people who are against vaccines. Yeah. No, I, I will tell you, of course the vaccines worked. Like I, I told my dad, you're fat. You're fat and old. You get the vaccine. Mm-hmm. I'm relatively young and not fat. fat. I, I'm not going to trust her right now because honestly, the Pfizer's a fifth column at this point. That wasn't like some conspiracy thinking. No, that's actually how it works. 
Dude, have you spent any time in academia? Do you, do you see how this works? I mean, it's clear in in uh in psychology how it warps how it warps people's per- per- perceptions. It doesn't warp the facts, but it warps what you focus on. It warps what you bring attention to. It really does work like a neurotic complex. And that's exactly what happened in, in uh, t- well, this would be 2021. So, hey, I, I don't know. I, I think if Sam Harris heard me say this, he, he, he just maybe couldn't even hear it. It's like, oh, you're, you're just uh, an anti-vax guy or something. Yeah, he, he's fixated on this idea that there's one type of person who was skeptical, and, and that's just not true. It's possible to be somebody who was not anti-vax but was also skeptical who also adhered to this bodily autonomy argument or whatever and um i just think yeah there's room for all of that stuff and look if what you're saying again to steel man it for the last time is just that i want to make sure that we're in a position to be really good at doing this the right way next time then yeah of course in a vague uh, abstract sense i agree with you but how we're going to actually do that starting making it worse yeah how we're going to actually do that starting from where we're at right now I, i don't really think that uh, the approach that we took this time uh, and this idea of following the medical consensus is likely to be uh, a good strategy. Uh, I mean, the, the 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 societies that dealt with this really well were just the ones that did better at having a sort of social cohesion that we just do not have right now in America. You know, Korea dealt with this really well. They were able to do, get do, like well, drive-through what about testing that one working perfectly. Country like Sweden did nothing. Mm-hmm. They did nothing. They, they fared just as well as everybody else. Yeah, but they're also not the same as us. I mean, I think that's an important point. Yes, they did nothing, but their natural way of being is not the same as an American's natural way of being. And I think there's something uh, there, there's something subtle there that is really worth understanding. I don't know how to put it into words, but uh, it involves a sort of tacit understanding of this collective action problem, which we do not have. We do have a cult of self-sufficiency in this country. Some of it is good. Some of it accounts for our grit and the cool things that we accomplish that Sweden does. And I'm not putting any of that. Dude, uh, I mean, at this point, maybe 120 years ago, but at this point, saying we we have a cult of self-sufficiency is, I, I mean... It's laughable from my perspective. Well, we do. That's why there's a bunch of dummies who didn't get vaccinated, even though you and I both agreed that it was the right thing for them to do because they're fat old people (laughs) who went out and slurped on each other's food at the Golden Corral in Florida and died. Dude, I mean, that happened. I don't care. Dude, see, that's the thing. We're not on equal footing here in this conversation. I'm just saying that didn't happen in Sweden, so don't give Sweden too much credit. No, listen, we adopted China's shutdown policies. We do not have a cult of self-sufficiency. Yeah, there are some guys in Oklahoma who went to the Golden Corral and were dead. That's not the same thing as we were taken over by by this, this Marxist Chinese idea that if there's a pandemic and there's it's a little bit uh, a little bit iffy, you just shut down the entire economy. No. <laughs> this is not a cult of self-sufficiency. This is a cult of of anxiety. This is a cult of hysteria, if anything. That's what happened. And th- that was made evident. And I-, I don't see how you come out of those COVID years saying we're in cult of self-sufficiency. Well, you see it every day. I mean, that's what every other episode of Rogan is about, right? Is about the guy who has his vitamin regime figured out perfectly, or his VO2 max figured out perfectly, or his gun collection figured out perfectly, or his, you know, th- <laughs> okay. that's what that's what we're talking about here. Well, and the thing well, is, no, you have yeah, a bunch but- of 70-year-old guys who are not living that lifestyle, but who are pretending to live it 
who are the ones who are killing each other at Golden Corral uh, because they believe that all this stuff was made up by, uh, you know, Fauci or something. And Sweden does not have that. So, of course, they're going to fare better because they're not as diluted as we oh, are. Oh, well, it was made by Fauci. I mean, he funded that lab. Did, did he not? Did America not fund that lab? Well, that's, yeah, that the was, lab leak is a whole separate. The lab did, did leak is a whole fund, thing. Did he not fund Gang of Function Research? Actually, that, that did happen. That is true. That That's not a conspiracy. That's not like weird, you know, uh, Alex Jones stuff. That's true. Nobody cares. Nobody cares. And he's never going to be brought to judge. It's just crazy to me that nobody cares. Yeah, we live in a cult of the oligarchy getting away with one more power grab. That's a way, that's a million times worse than what some guy at Golden Corral happens, you know, get his buddy <laughs> sick and they both die. Okay. I mean, that's sad. Of course that's sad. But that's not my business. That's not my business. When you adopt Chinese, Chinese pandemic policies, now it's my business. Cult of self. Podcast. No, I, I think that's, dude, I don't know. Whatever. We got to get to Twin Peaks. We can talk about this later, but. Well, do you have a final point to make about that? No, no, these brazenheadspodcast at gmail.com. I hope we tried to make it clear like what he's talking about here. I think there's something to be said there about the fragmentation of, of our society prevents us from ever being able to negotiate these things collectively the right way, um, while also being wrong about a lot of stuff and having this sort of philosopher king perspective that is is not in any way helping the fragmentation. It's increasing it. Um, so yeah, that's, that's the tricky position yeah. that Sam Harris that's, finds himself in. Yeah, it's tricky. All right. That's for sure. You said it. All right. You know, what's not tricky is appreciating Twin Peaks, 13 demons. One of the most, it's just perfect television. One of the I, most I mean, goaded episodes ever. There, there's basically oh, a point God. like, yeah, there's a point like two thirds through this episode where it just gets so good that like everything that happens for the entire rest of the episode is just like 10 out of 10. Um, so we'll get there. Um, but where we left off last time, um, well, I guess I'll do log lady intro. Uh, sometimes we want to hide from ourselves. We do not want to be us. It is too difficult to be us. It is at these times that we turn to drugs or alcohol or behavior to make us forget that we are ourselves. This of course is only a temporary solution to a problem that is going to keep on returning. And sometimes these solutions are worse than the original problem. Yes, it is a dilemma. Is there an answer? Of course there is. As a wise person said with a smile, the answer is within the question. Good stuff. Uh, so how does that relate to this episode? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, uh, we have this issue of, you know, Mike and Philip Gerard sort of being this sort of dilemma inside of one person. You know, he doesn't want to be himself. He takes drugs to, to you know, suppress the Mike aspect of himself. But uh, that's a little bit too is, is, on is the surface. Is he talking about the, the, the question at the end when Cooper asked, well, Mike, at the end of the episode, where's Bob? Mm -hmm. Is the answer in that question? Yeah, maybe. Is Bob near us now, he says. Yeah. yeah. Um, okay, well, I'll, I'll oh, breeze through says. some of the simpler stuff at the beginning of the episode. There's some plot stuff here, uh, and we'll get to the really good stuff later. Um, we left off with Harold... Uh, you know, s catching uh, Maddie and Donna trying to steal the secret diary from from his from his house, um, and uh, James rushes in and saves the day. Basically, uh, he barges into the front door. How does James know that they're there? I don't remember that. He followed them. 
Oh, he followed oh, Maddie. Yeah, no, because, Maddie came into the yes, uh, the double R, the diner. Yeah, and, and then, then she went off, she and he was followed. Being, good yeah. call, good call. So yeah, he sort of saves the day, pushes Harold out of the way. Harold is of course stuck in his house because he's a shut in while they 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 make their escape. Um, similarly on the rescuing front, uh, Coop and Hawk and dude, don't you want to talk about how Harold says? I invested my heart and soul into you. He says the sweetest line ever. He says you're unclean. Also, <laughs> you're unclean. You know what's sweet about this is he's basically Quasimodo. Like he has Quasimodo charm, mm-hmm. but he in himself, the Quasimodo, turns into Claude Frollo. It's like you're impure. You're the bad ones. I trusted you. You know, I, I invested my heart and soul into you, and and you, you know, you hurt me like that. Mm-hmm. Good thing his acting was so on point. True. But by, by the way, they couldn't just grab the freaking diary when, when they came I in. I wrote so that down. That, it's ridiculous. Gra- it's right there. Yeah. Donna and Harold have like the most femi tug of war in the oh, history of the world. And that's it. They never get the diary. <laughs> that's why you need to tell James about it so he can come in and at least grab the diary. Yeah, I mean, right. just punch him in the face. You already broke his heart. Just give him one in the face they could have just they could have walked back inside and just grabbed it and pushed him over again like he wasn't going to do anything yeah he he dresses like a teddy bear spraying his orchids yeah it's it's ridiculous and he had like a sweet like head whip back Mm -hmm. you know when he was in pain like it's almost um i mean it's just thematically not even close but you know ariel and the little mermaid when she comes up and whips her hair back right and the water goes flying he, he does that but in pain and it's awesome. Yeah, it was it was Vader. It's like it was Darth Vader yelling no in the prequels when he finds out that Padme died during childbirth. We didn't make this a video podcast, so I could spend five minutes just reenacting his his head whip back. Yeah, it was a good one. <laughs> yeah, it was good. Okay, so yeah, on the rescuing front, also um, Hawk and Truman and Coop have Audrey. Uh, they, you know, they've rescued her from uh, one-eyed jacks you know after the the big confrontation there so yeah in case you forgot from last time jean renault got away uh blackie is dead uh and you know they busted up one-eyed jacks and, and rescued audrey um so yeah i guess the next thing that happens is yeah james and donna kind of like kiss and make up outside of harold's and just you know james really is sort of obsessing in this episode about how in love he is with Donna and how he's really seeing yeah. things clearly. And Dude, which is a really sweet scene because I told you I'm rewatching it from the beginning with my wife. Mm-hmm. And I mean, you know, we're in episode three where Donna realizes that she's in love with James and she's telling her mom about it. So it was really cool to see that scene of them realizing, hey, we need, we need each other. Right. Like our, our hearts need to be together. Like us first, you know, it's all like cheesy stuff, but you know, when you're 17, it... Yeah, it's like really, it's important, right? Yeah. It's yeah, it's good, and and this might be a little bit of a stretch, but it's funny when you kind of think about the uh, the one little scene we get later in this episode, which will breeze over with Nadine and Big Ed, where it's like you know, according to Nadine, because she has this amnesia going on, like she's a high schooler too, right? And she's in love with Big Ed, and they really are in reality like married and committed to each other. But this, like, the feeling that they have is nothing like this actual feeling uh, of connection and, and deep love that that oh, James yeah. and Donna share. I mean, share. dude, the the Big Ed and AD thing is great because you know, I mean, their whole relationship. After you hear that backstory, you realize their whole relationship is is a delusion. Right. Now it's like it's just a little bit more of a delusion. Right, and that's and why, honestly, it's... not even that much more 
all things, you know, if you consider all things. So, and that's why it's so amazing. And I can't say enough about it in season three when Big Ed and Nate and, uh, Don, and, and, and sorry, what's her name? Uh, Norma. Uh, Norma finally, finally get to be together with the Sam Cooke song playing and everything. It's it's so dope. So we'll get there. Okay, I, I have my issues with that scene, but we'll, we'll talk about it. <laughs> we'll get there later. Episode. Yeah, that's yeah. that's months away on our current. But pace. yeah, I mean, it's uh, you know, th- there's some fun fan service in in season three, and that's definitely part of yeah. it. Yeah. Um, okay, so. Um, Harry is looking through his book of mugshots and he recognizes like, oh, this guy that we saw at One-Eyed Jacks is Jean Renault. He talks to Coop about it. And so Coop is starting to feel guilty. Like, look, I've gotten too involved in this thing. I went outside of my jurisdiction uh, when we went to One-Eyed Jacks uh, for the first time, uh, you know, when they met up with Jacques Renault uh, back in season one. And that's how this whole mess first got started. That's why Jean Renault is really after me. He was using Audrey as bait. And this is just like something that's happened to me back in my past. I should have known better. I've previously made this mistake where I've gotten involved and I've exceeded my bounds. I've violated what was right to do what I felt I needed to do and and brought harm to somebody who I care about. And the same thing is happening over again uh, with Audrey. And that will be relevant for the next few episodes here. Good scene. Yeah. And when he says that, I'm kind of like, yeah, you're right. You did mess up. Yeah. Yeah, what are you doing? Uh, but by the way, the scene where uh, James and um, and Donna made up. Uh, do you realize how, or did you notice how stiff James was in their makeout scene? Yeah, it's weird. It's like it's it's really awkward. I mean, and Laura, Fl- yeah, you, you recognized last episode that Laura Flynn Boyle, like she's a good actress. She was good in that one Harold scene for sure. And and she emotes well in that makeout scene, but he is really stiff. I mean, his left hand. It's it's kind of. It was like that internet meme, like maybe 15 years ago, the, the hover hand. Right. That That's kind of what he's, he's kind of hover handing Lara Flynn Boyle. Yeah, it was a little bit weird. It looks, I, it's bad. Yeah, I don't think that's related to the story. I think that really is just, yeah, acting chops. I think you're right. It's a yeah, little bit awkward. It's just weird. Okay, so yeah, Coop meets up with Ben to, you know, to debrief after the ransom, you know, thing. He tells him, like, look, I was able to rescue your daughter. I brought back your money. There's really cold vibes going on here, right? Like, Coop knows that Ben's a bad guy. Yeah. Like, his intentions <laughs> and are not And if you don't good. pick up on that, there's ominous music to let you know. Right, right. <laughs> so we'll, yeah. we'll get more out of that in a minute here because um, we'll revisit <laughs> well, that later. My question there is, um, will we get more out of that? I mean, my question there is, what does Cooper know? Does he know that Ben Horn is the owner of One-Eyed Jacks? I don't think that he really How knows he know that. that yet? I, I, the reason why I don't think he knows that is because later on when it's Ben, Coop, and Audrey, she Audrey very clearly wants to be alone with Coop so, so she can tell him everything that she knows. Right. And she doesn't get a chance to do that. So I think that's when she would have spilled yeah. the beans about all that stuff. But but Coop yeah, knows ben enough. Ben goes, well, why don't we all go together? Yeah, but but he knows. But Coop knows enough to know that Ben is not pure of heart here, and that, that something's going on. And maybe he does already put together the pieces. I'm not sure. Well, he's good at reading people. I, I like Ben's acting in this. Uh, a brothel? Mm-hmm. What's that? <laughs> right. Yeah. I had no idea. Mister Innocent I'm Guy. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Okay. Leo yeah, like comes. How, you know, in, in case you didn't pick up on any of that, Ben hugs the briefcase as he walks away. <laughs> the briefcase of money. Yeah, this guy likes Did money. You notice that? Yeah. This. Yeah. He, he just hugs it. Like, okay. Now, I, now, thanks for the music. Now I definitely get this it. This guy might be shallow. 
Um, yeah. Okay, I'm going to keep going fast. Leo comes home for the first time. Um, Mr. Pitt from Seinfeld uh, is the guy who's giving them their insurance check. That's a good little 90s cross-reference there. That's the guy who was Elaine's boss uh, for you Seinfeld fans out there. The guy who was uh, obsessed with the mm-hmm. Magic Eye poster and made Elaine go get all the different socks and all those all those great Seinfeld episodes we know and love. Uh, they were expecting to get $5,000 from insurance, but only wound up getting $700 uh, because of medical expenses. Uh, so Bobby and and uh, and and um, Shelley's scheme is kind of screwed here. Um, they're not going to be able to just live on Easy Street uh, having Leo back home in the house. They have to figure something out. And uh, that's it for that. Uh, Donna tells Truman, she's at the sheriff's office, and she's telling Sheriff Truman about this guy Harold and the secret diary and Truman's kind of skeptical. He's like, look, we've been on wild goose chases with you guys before you tried to fricking break into Jacoby's office and he wound up getting assaulted and put into the hospital, even though it wasn't their fault anyway, but whatever. Uh, he's kind of fed up with all this like teenage shit. Um, and then in the middle of that scene, I think this is our first appearance of Gordon Cole, right? Like this is the first time he's been on screen. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So Gordon Cole played by David Lynch. I mean, I guess I guess I would have to say my favorite character in all of Twin Peaks. I mean, I'm trying to think. It's got to be Gordon Cole. I mean, he, it's David Lynch, the goat. I mean, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, that's a good question. Who's your favorite? I, Twin I think Peaks it's character? probably him. Um, so yeah, we you know he has a hearing problem. You know, you get to meet. What about Bobby? He's he's pretty cool. <laughs> yeah, I guess. Uh, I'm going to put Gordon I mean, Bobby Cole. in those first few episodes. I know his character changed a little <laughs> bit, but I'm, I'm kind of thinking like, oh yeah, he knows what's up. Yeah, Bobby's awesome. So not only does... But dude, don't you think there's something symbolic there of like um, <clears throat> the police, the bureaucracy? And I, I think it does say something that Gordon Cole, I mean, again, FBI guy shows up. I mean, it's like, yeah, like there's something... Okay, so I'm thinking, for, you know, back to the... Um, pilot of James and Donna realizing that yeah, nobody nobody loved, nobody cared truly cared about Laura more than we do. And so we're gonna solve this on our own. Mm-hmm. And um I don't know, man. I, I just think it's bad juju that the bureaucracy is not listening to them. Yeah. Yeah, you mean the thing about not really giving too much credence to to Donna and the secret diary. Yeah, I think you're right. I mean, the secret diary is important. And in fact, we're going to have that reinforced to us in just a yeah. second here by Gordon Cole. And it actually sneaks right by. Uh, so I think that jives with exactly what you're saying because oh, Gordon Cole I mean, shows what up. What sneaks right by? Well, Gordon Cole shows up with a bunch of data, right? Like not only are we meeting this great character, but he's also telling Truman a bunch of info about the case real quick. Uh, Mm -hmm. it's one of those things. It reminds me of infinite jest where it's just like a big stretch of just entertainment will happen where none of it really matters. And then in like two sentence fragments, you'll get this stuff that is like absolutely pivotal to understanding what's going on. And it's really easy to miss. And that's part of what makes it so addicting. So what Gordon Cole says is that first of all, uh, Albert, uh, and his lab has determined that there were fibers in the hallway outside of where Coop was shot in the Great Northern, and those fibers come from a vicuna coat. A vicuna is mm-hmm. an obscure type of animal. Um, Albert also identified the drug uh, that the one-armed man was taking because they found it in the bathroom of the sheriff's station. He said it's something he's never seen before, a very weird combination of stuff. And then he also says that the paper that was recovered from the train site where the murder happened, 
uh, Albert's lab determined that that paper was taken from a diary. Uh, and, and that paper right. is the paper that said Firewalk with me on it. Um, yeah. so yeah, that, I mean, that links right back up to Laura's diary, which as you said, has been given just in the previous scene has yeah, been is, given sort of short yeah. shrift. Just, just telling you, dude, you gotta wake up. Yeah. Now, now I think actually the Firewalk with me paper is from Laura's diary diary. The one with the pages ripped out, which the sheriffs do already have. Um, cause that's the one that Leland had access to. So it's, it's not directly the secret diary, but I'm just saying that I think that does kind of relate back to the fact that like, Hey, just when you're being dismissive, dismissive of Donna, like here comes the FBI telling you like, look, there are still leads open in this case, like follow yeah, up on yeah, this. Cause he's from the FBI. So you're going to listen to him, yeah. which you know shouldn't exist anyway. I mean, teenage love should exist. <laughs> the FBI shouldn't. So Donna's has more authority here from my perspective. Good call. Good call. I, I know Sam Harris may not get that cause you know, whatever, but <laughs> Okay, we gotta we gotta keep going fast to get through this because there's all the good stuff is still yet to come. Uh, Hawk has found the one armed man. We'll get back to him in a minute. Uh, ben is coming to see Audrey. She's recovering from her heroin OD in Coop's care. Uh, so the next morning, Ben comes over to see her, and they have a very creepy conversation where you know he he's trying to be like the caring father, playing it up for Coop, and she's obviously extremely skeeved out because. She was in well, yeah, one last time. Yeah, she was in one eyed Jacks, and he was basically about to bang her when she was behind this mask. <laughs> He's trying to. Last time they're in the same room together, you get really cra- cringy vibes, and yeah, all those just come back. There's a crazy moment inside of the scene where he's like playing it up like the caring father and he's consoling her by like patting her shoulder. And then he realizes how fucked up it is and like looks at his hand, like patting her on the shoulder. And it's just like, it's, it's so nasty. (laughs) Yeah. Good subtle stuff in this scene. That's good. The other good thing is Audrey's look to Cooper and Cooper's look to Ben. Mm -hmm. Like that says everything. Yeah. You know, Cooper knows what's going on. Maybe not exactly. Right. But you can read people. I mean, he could tell that uh, Harry and, uh, Josie were dating, you know, just stuff like that. Right. So. Um, okay. We have, there's this one throwaway scene with an Aideen coming home to see big Ed. She's still in her amnesia thinking she's a high schooler. No big deal. We can get throwaway scene. What? <laughs> we can get back to that later. The linchpin of the episode. Uh, the slab faced Asian man has just seemingly like had sex with Josie or something. Weird oh, yeah. happened. Um, oh yeah. They, they definitely, ha- I mean, Dude, I mean, how how long is the camera on his midsection as he's putting yeah, pants he's on? Yeah, he's tightening I mean, his belt. You're, you're kind of waited with bated breath because you're like, who is this guy putting his pants back on? Right. Because that obviously means he had sex with somebody. And so he basically tells her, like, look, I have a one-way ticket here for you to Hong Kong. Mr. Eckert is expecting you. And Josie's trying to buy more time and saying, like, look, I haven't gotten my money yet. You know, I waited five years for this, blah, blah, blah. And he says, like, look, you've been lying to the sheriff. Um, I think maybe he means something to you, even though you've treated him like shit. If you're not on this plane, uh, you and him are both dead. So the stakes are, you know, insanely high for Josie here. She's this is her last basically chance uh, in Twin Peaks. Dude, it's so obvious watching it again with my wife now that. Jo- the the dynamic and Josie and Harry's relationship is the like it's it's like some kind of like emotional inside of what Laura's life was like when she was alive. Mm-hmm. I think Josie is in a very similar situation. Like, yeah, she she cares for Harry just like Laura cared for Bobby. But there's things here that are completely 
outside of her control that were around before she was born that are going to be here before she was she's died and because I guess maybe the town or maybe society in general has not been able to deal with them well. Yeah. She's going to die for it. You know, she's going to die for yeah. it. You know, I the great um I was reading a bunch of Dostoevsky earlier this year. I kind of got sidetracked. I just got to get through Poor Folk, and I've gone through pretty much everything. But, um, dude, The Double. The Double is a great little book, and it's about, you know, this guy who splits into two, and he just becomes two different people, of course. I mean, you know, very much like a, a cartoonish representation of schizophrenia. I mean, not unlike Philip Gerard and Mike, right? And, um, I mean, it's so clear. Like, it just, the society at that time could not deal with, mental illness and i think this is all a great representation of that yeah in, inside of the world of twin peaks i think it's it's gonna be clear later on by the time we see the whole picture that josie is not just this you know femme fatale who's wrapped up in you know uh, uh, uh material the the drama of the material world she, she's intersected with the black lodge somehow like th this is yeah evil that lives in this those woods that is that has visited her life uh and i think you know her end kind of indicates that also even though it is silly uh, we'll get there later hmm. um james and maddie uh meet up for a minute uh and basically just james apologizes for being weird and and he's talking about how you know he realizes his love for donna and he kind of was just only seeing Laura in her and she understands that because, you know, when she and Laura grew up, like they had that special connection and, and she's going home tomorrow anyway. So put a pin in that. Maddie's going home tomorrow. Dude, she's totally going to make it home, yep. I swear. Oh, she's going Dude, home, in this all right. scene, James literally says, it's just hard sometimes, you know? <laughs> <laughs> Good Dude, line. Yeah. <laughs> Sweet. Everybody file that one away the next time you want to appear Dude, sensitive. It's like, are we watching a Vanilla Ice movie? I mean, come on. <laughs> Yeah, that's a good one. Okay, now getting to the uh, the drama of the mill, the, this whole plot line that I said I always didn't quite understand. We have Ben and Josie meeting with each other, uh, and like we said, this is this is Josie's uh, time to shine here. This is her last chance. She says, "Look, I have this contract here for the mill. It's got Pete's signature on it. I'm ready to hand this thing over to you, Ben, but I need my money now." And he's, you know, trying to push her off and saying, like, you know, wait, 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 and don't threaten me because I have all this blackmail material on you, Josie, and about how your brother's boat went boom. We don't, we never really knew the whole story with Josie's brother, but, you know, we do know that he died in some sort of boat accident and she inherited the mill and it's being alluded to again here. And she kind of fights back, you know, fight fire with fire and says that, you know, she herself also has a safety deposit box that has a bunch of documents about Ben and Catherine's uh, shady deals, trying to like forge the ledger at the mill and all that kind of stuff. They'll bury us side by side, she says. Uh, and so they're both kind of stuck there and ben basically just says well played and he gives her the five million dollar check from mr tojimura so if you're ben right you're trying to play this game where you need to get the mill so that you can sell it to some outside investor you have both the icelanders and this random mr tojimura person banging down your door but tojimura has given you the check already and you haven't given them anything in return um, he's just given up his $5 million to get Josie out of his life. And I don't really know what his plan is at this point here, but he does get 
the signed contract from Pete. So I guess in theory, he really is in a position where he could give the mill to, to Mr. Tojimura. So I guess he's, he, he's feeling fine with that. And that's the way that that all. Well, he thinks he's going to be able to develop Ghostwood now. Right. Yeah. He thinks that's what that means to him. Yeah. But it's like, I like how you called Mr. Tojimura them because yeah, it's weird. <laughs> yeah. I guess it is weird. Like, do I say him? Do I say her? But I don't totally understand it because if he gave that check to Josie, then it's like, so are you expecting to get more money later? Like, is Tojimura going to pay you more? Like, that was just a deposit up front that was, like, goodwill money or something? I guess that must be what he's thinking. Because otherwise, I don't get... He gets nothing if, if that was it. I guess it, that wasn't it. I think that was well, just... I, I think he's betting on the Ghostwood Estate project working yeah, out. Yeah, I guess you're right. And Tojimura's, what, an investor in that? Or, yeah. Or what? Yeah. Yeah, so he's thinking there's more where that came from. Right. Okay, so then we have the funny scene of Bobby and Shelly partying, uh, getting drunk and eating pizza. Uh, yeah, even though they were fighting the last Right, even though they're broke, but whatever. They're still partying because whatever. They're just, again, this goes back to the log lady, right? Like, you know, it's too difficult to be us. We turn to drugs or alcohol to, to make us forget that we are ourselves, right? They have this in, in crazy problem. Their whole scheme is not working. What are you going to do? Well, like, look, let's, let's get shit-faced and we'll figure it out later. Um, and then, yeah. yeah, there's the funny kind of scene there where they're, they're kind of making out right in front of Leo and it just gets way too creepy. So they have to like basically be nice to Leo to make up for it. Yeah. I mean, I don't think like you'd have to be psychotic to do that in real life. I get it's like a good scene for television. That's why I say, I mean, this is just perfect television. Yeah. Well, they are hot though. So they just, they, their hormones got away with themselves cause they're both very hot. So Sometimes, you know, you just got to make out. Especially Bobby. <laughs> but especially Shelly. But especially Bobby. Um, Dude, I think uh, Leo's kind of hot too, but I can't really tell because his face looks so dumb to me because yeah. he's such a terrible actor. It's awful. Yeah. But I think he's actually like structurally, he's a very good looking man. I don't know. I'm going to do some research on that. Get back. Someone make a clip of that, a Sam Harris, uh, enraging, uh, clip edit to make it sound like Diz thinks this is a great looking handsome man. Diz talking about handsome men. <laughs> yeah. And, and then I'll do like an explainer an hour long. <laughs> no, it, it was longer than that. Like, I think if you paid the subscription, they, it, he just kept going. Mm -hmm. Then I'm going to do an hour long explainer of how I don't really think that, but I guess it turns out that I do like, yeah, you got that right. I think he's a handsome man. Okay. I, I did research that the the preceding week to to establish that. So, all right. Now this is basically where I'm sort of not even gay. It's just weird. <laughs> now this is basically where we cross the threshold into like everything from here on out is like actually insanely good. That's just like the the lead up of the episode. But now this stuff at the end, I just love all of this stuff. So uh, Coop and Gordon Cole sync up for the first time in person. Um, Gordon does the thing of you remind me of a small Mexican chihuahua chihuahua as he says, um, which, you know, yeah. that could relate to the wow, Bob, wow, uh, palindrome, which will come up later uh, in twin peaks lore. I think it's probably more just a pronunciation quirk, but, um, but yeah, uh, Gordon expresses to Coop that like, look, we're worried, especially Albert is worried because he's your friend and he knows you as a colleague. Um, that you're in over your head here. You know, this is a lot. And it reminds us of what happened back in Pittsburgh. And uh, Coop reassures him that body and spirit uh, are, are, are totally healthy and, and he understands the risk, but he's, he's ready to keep working on this case. And then just to make matters more complicated, 
uh, Cole has a letter for Coop from Wyndham Earl, his old his old partner and now nemesis, uh, who we don't really know that well yet. And it's a chess move. There's some sort of chess thing going on here. And he says, bless your heart, Coop. Now we're all going to have to watch your back. So like things, something scary is impending here for Cooper. Dude, I wonder if there's something meta and symbolic in that of like Cole, the director. I mean, David Lynch, the director, handing off this character mm-hmm. to uh, to Coop. Like, dude, you deal with this. Right. I'm out. <laughs> I can't. Yeah. I can't stomach this game. True. Um, I I absolutely adore the next scene. It's it's like just one of the coolest ones ever. Just. I don't know, just for whatever reason, this just tickled me so much, which is when Leland shows back up in Ben's office, uh, mm-hmm. and, and Ben obviously needs help. You know, he's, he's struggling through, like, what to do strategically with all of his shady dealings. And uh, so he kind of sits Leland down and says, like, all right, look, if you're ready to return to work, like, I need some advice on something. And so he lays out the whole kind of situation with him. He's like, look, I got the Icelanders on the line. I got Mr. Tojimura on the line. And Jerry's in Japan right now trying to scope out this Tojimura person. We're trying to learn about how legit these potential Tokyo investors might be. And I need to buy some time uh, while, you know, we figure out, you know, what Jerry has to say. And while this whole thing is going on, there's like a stuffed Arctic fox that's like behind Leland's shoulder. And he just does this great little bit of acting business where he gets kind of like distracted by it and like put, picks off a piece of his fur and puts it into his pocket for no reason. I don't know. I just, yeah. Is that cause he has white hair now? Well, I, I was, yeah, confused. I don't know. It's kind of like symbolic with the white hair thing. I think, yeah, that's very interesting, but I mean, also links up to like, what about the Vicuna coat fibers? You know, it's like, if you're starting to think about animal fur, it's like, you know, that was just referenced earlier and just and just the whole way that they play the whole thing off, I just think is just so great. Um, so then Leland comes up with like this awesome advice, like he's being Mr. Badass, like legal expertise. He's like, he says escrow. That's how you Yeah, know. exactly. He has this whole spiel about like, okay, well, here's what we're going to do. We're going to call in a new inspection. You know, the fire demands that we do a new inspection. And, uh, you know, if there's money coming from either way, we can pass it through the Caymans. We make a little bit off the exchange rate and we can always uh, escrow into a black <laughs> hole. He's like speaking all this gobbledygook. And he even yeah. does this little like jaw maneuver like he lays out this whole like line of bullshit to to ben it's so good and he just has this he does a little thing with his jaw where he just i don't know it's just a perfect little acting bit of business just it's it's really good stuff Uh, just entertaining ray wise is perfect he's the best and there's another great scene with reynolds ray wise (laughs) yeah and there's another great scene with him later but okay but first of all the so a vicuna is like a llama it looks yeah like. yeah it, it that that thing that is stuffed there in the office is not a vicuna a vicuna is like a little like llama type deal yeah like an alpaca mm-hmm. type guy um the next scene is harry going to see josie and uh and the slab-faced asian man is there who she says is is her her assistant mr lee <laughs> yeah he's been like three different things yeah um <laughs> And Josie is basically just turning her back on him. She literally turns her back on him. You know, she just says, like, I I have to go. It would be better if you weren't involved in anything related to me anymore. It's over. Uh, yeah. And Harry tries to say, I love you. He says, I love you to her multiple times. And she literally turns her back on him and, and walks out. It's pretty brutal. Yeah, dude, uh, Harry. I, I feel like I need to be Harry's grandpa now and, like, just sit him down and be like, 
Yeah, I mean, just the way that Josie says it, like, I wanted to be what you, Harry, wanted me to be. Mm -hmm. You could tell that. Like, she wanted to be that. And the way that she expressed it, I mean, it's a way, it's very honest. Mm -hmm. She's being very honest with Harry, and he needs to listen because she is being honest. And if she is, in fact, honest, he needs to run the opposite way. And um, Yeah, he says, I love you twice. And, you know, as the uh, Gen Zers say... I cringe to death mm-hmm. at <laughs> that scene. I, I know what it's like to cringe to death. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oof. And he even says, Mr. Lee, leave us alone, which is so funny because he's such a dope in that scene where he's literally <laughs> even like falling for calling this guy Mr. Lee, you know? Dude, you were, you were questioning, you were questioning Josie previously and she distracted you with sex. <laughs> right. She, she, if, yeah, if, Dude, there's some sweet day advice. If a girl distracts you with sex and like really like crazy sex and wants you to rip her laundry that she just got from Seattle. Mm-hmm. Dude, run. <laughs> You're asking her serious questions and you don't get answers. Oh, it's yeah, it's so bad. Right. Oh god. Uh, uh. Dudes are dumb, you know, and I'm I'm pissed at Harry, but I'm an idiot too. So right. I've you know, certainly whatever. been an idiot uh, in my own self. Yep. <laughs> yeah. I, no, very relatable. So the next scene is the one that I, the other one that I love so much, which is Ben sitting down for his dinner with Mr. Tojimura. Uh, and Tojimura is saying like, look, you have my $5 million check. I have nothing. You know, what's going on here? Kind of putting the pressure on like, let's finish this deal. Um, and then in the meantime, when they're trying to have this conversation and Ben is trying to weasel his way through this, Leland is over at the piano bar uh, nearby in the Great Northern singing Getting to Know You from The King and I (laughs) and just doing another one of his classic uh, awkward Leland moments. And so Ben goes over to try to like get him to put a sock in it, but they wind up like singing the song together. It's just so good. I just love it. Yeah, uh, Leland was so put so much pressure on Ben in that moment. Like Ben just had to. (laughs) Yep. Just go along with it, dude. Just whatever. Yeah. It's gonna be the song's gonna be over in ninety seconds. Yep. Just, just say he had to play it off, and then and then I, I love uh, Pete and Tojimura. Right. In the meantime, Tojimura so goes over to the bar and is talking oh. to Pete, and Pete is trying to like buddy up to him and just get in the cold shoulder. Uh, and he's like, "Oh, you're not from around here." Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> it's so. I love how it's so obvious that Tojimura does not want to talk to Pete, but he just won't stop. Yep. And then you think that Pete is drunk the whole time, and that's like a reveal, which is also funny because that has layers to it too. Because first of all, Jack Nance, the the actor, was a famously very destructive drunk who basically drank himself to death, like you know, five years after Twin Peaks came out and been a drunk his whole life. So I think that's also part of like what's going on behind the scenes because him and Lynch were were close friends. Uh, so I think that subtext is there, but also it's like, it's hidden from you, the viewer, the whole time. You obviously would just assume Pete's sitting at the bar in the great Northern in the evening. Of course you would right. assume he's drunk, but finally at the end of the scene, you realize he's just been drinking milk this whole time. Oh God. I mean, that's so funny, dude. It's, it's such a great scene. Yeah. Oh, it's so much fun. It's good stuff. That's why, yeah, this episode is way up there. Okay, and then the final scene is we're back at the sheriff's office and we're sitting down with the one-armed man, Philip Gerard, who Hawk has, has brought in previously in the episode. And uh, everyone's there, even Gordon Cole is there. And uh, he's saying he needs his medicine or else, you know, something's going to happen. He's going to go through this sort of like transformation uh, that he's susceptible to. And um, they they don't give him the medicine. They withhold the syringe, even though they're literally holding it in their hand. 
um, and they kind of just like hold him back, you know, so that he's he's secure and sort of let it happen. And there's great sound design uh, in this scene. There's like a cool like sax like background that plays that makes it kind of like weird and and spooky sounding. And uh, and then he kind of switches. He flips. You know, he becomes Mike instead of being Philip Gerard. He says that uh, there's no need for medicine. I'm not in pain. My name is Mike. I am an inhabiting spirit, and Philip Gerard is the host, uh, blah, blah, blah. And they show him the sketch uh, of Bob, you know, the, the true face of Bob that only the gifted can see. Uh, mm-hmm. and, and Mike says... The gifted or the damned. Or the damned, that's right. Good call. And he says, he is Bob, eager for fun. He wears a smile, everybody run. That's a good, that's a good little creepy poem, similar to the Firewalk With Me one. Then what about Bob feeds on fear and pleasure are his children. Pleasures are his children. Yes. yes. He feeds on fear and pleasures are his children. Oh man, that's so that's good. good. And then, and so then Cooper and Mike together, because Cooper knows it from his dream, uh, they recite the poem, uh, the fire walk with me poem, by the way, you know, the big like debate about the fire walk with me poem, right? Is, do, do you know this one, the, the two different mm-hmm. interpretations of it? Uh, no. Do I? I so what, so the, the Fire Walk With Me poem is, Through the darkness of future past, the magician longs to see one chance out between two worlds, Fire Walk With Me. But the debate is, and I do not know the answer to this, is it chance, like C-H-A-N-T, like you're chanting? Or is it chance, C-H-A-N-C-E, like you only have one chance out between two worlds, Fire Walk With Me? I actually don't know which of those two it is. It sounds totally ambiguous when it's spoken. I think it's the first one with the T. You think it's T? See, I always thought it was well, well, Chance. That, I mean, you know, I'm, I'm watching it on Amazon. I got my uh, subtitles on. Mm. I, that's what I remember. Mm. Okay. I don't I don't think anything turns on it, but I just think that it's that it's interesting to, yeah, th- that ambiguity. Um, okay. And then they, and Mike says that he still inhabits this vessel, you know, the vessel of Philip Gerard, the one armed man, even though he's already like cut off the arm and, and seen the true face of God. Um, he's inhabiting this vessel for one purpose, which is to stop Bob. Uh, and they ask, is Bob near us now? And he says for nearly 40 years in a large house made of wood surrounded by trees, the house is filled with many rooms, each alike, but occupied by different souls night after night. So it's the Great Northern Hotel. That's where Bob resides, according to Mike. So now, what are you thinking? It's uh, Ben? or I mean, you're thinking it's Ben or Leland at this point. I mean, I guess. I don't even know if you would think Leland, right? I think if they're specifically calling out the Great Northern, it's kind of interesting because it's really, I think, leading you towards thinking that it would be Ben. I, I don't know, in my opinion, at least. I think if you're watching it for the first time, that that's kind of like what you would be thinking. Well, you know, I watched it for the first time in what, like 2017 or 2018? Mm-hmm. You know, I don't exactly remember what I was thinking, but when I found out that Leon was the murderer, I was not surprised. Yeah. I think I remember thinking, oh, yeah, I was kind of on that trail. Yeah. I mean, you know, I don't know if I really knew. It's like checking the answer in the back of the book, kind of knowing, but it wasn't surprising to me. Right. Now I think I think this is all going to come to a conclusion in the next episode. I think the next one is the one where this all goes down. I have a hunch. Yes, I think. I actually don't know. I don't remember exactly how it plays out, but I think it all gets resolved in the next one. Oh, it does. Yeah. Yeah. And well, it, it gets resolved for the audience. Doesn't get resolved for Twin Peaks. And I think that uh, the next episode is directed by Tom, Lynch. Right? Also. 
Yeah. I mean, ultimately, what is that poem about? It's about like reconciling these these two metaphysical realities, and fire allows you to do it. Is that is that what it is? I mean, what's your interpretation of the poem, whether it's chance or chance? I always thought that it was chance. C-E. Ch- yeah, chance. Like like one opportunity out. Um, and I don't think I ever put too much like semantic weight onto it. I just think that it's like some spooky shit, you know, for a for a Black Lodge spirit to say. Although when you get into season three and you start talking about like, you know, God of Light uh, and when you get into Firewalk With Me, the movie where the log lady warns Laura, you know, that once a fire starts here, it is very difficult to put out. Um, Obviously, like these connections start getting stronger and stronger. I mean, to me, I just think that it means that it relates to this idea of there being these overlapping worlds, right? Through the darkness of future pasts, you know, Coop has his past in Pittsburgh. When we get into season three, we have this parallelism of, you know, there being an alternate woman who is Laura Polar, who is in Odessa, Texas. Um, yeah. But what does futures past even mean? I, I think it's just like reconciling these opposite things. Yeah. I, I I don't know if it's really meant like you can really make sense of it logically. I th- I think it's just yeah. Well, fire walk with me. I mean, that tells me that yeah, there are these two worlds, and there is some kind of there's like some reach and connection like on on one side or the other. Somebody's trying to make a connection between the other world, and fire is the way to do that. Like walk, fire, walk with me to the other world, or fire, walk with me in, in unison as one. I I could see it both ways. I don't. Yeah, I don't know. I really do not know. Yeah. All right, we did it. We got through both of those big topics without uh, totally blowing our time. So I'm proud. Um, everyone, let us know what you think. The Brazenheads Podcast at Gmail dot com. Do not miss the next episode because. We've said this multiple times, but this is another one of those ones that arguably is truly maybe the best episode of all of them. Uh, the next one might be. I, I feel like this, like the next episode of the Brayson Heads needs to be a big deal. <laughs> like, why is CNN not covering this? True. The Brazen Heads have finally made it to a central, I mean, not the not the pivotal episode, but one of the pivotal episodes in the first two seasons of Twin Peaks, the prison heads and their awesome analysis have finally made right. it. Right. Yeah. I am, I'm excited. And then once dude, dude, maybe we could submit the next episode to like some, a podcast award. Show good idea. Or good know. idea. It's all got all the makings of an award winning episode. Is there, is there a podcast version of the Emmys or something? I think, yeah, I think there is. Um, people care about it even less than they care about the Emmys. <laughs> if you can believe that. <laughs> <laughs> well, hey, you know, whatever. Yeah. No, it's gonna it's promises to be a good one, and then past that point, I'm just gonna start getting excited for season three. But th- there's there's a long ways to go between those two. So yes, join us next time. Let us know what you think. Uh, yeah. Yeah, the Brisbane podcast podcast at gmail All right, dude. I'll talk to you soon. Yeah. Good talking. Yep. To you. Late. <laughs>